Um, good morning. A couple of housekeeping matters, and then we'll get to the lesson. Um, I've got some extra books that uh, um, do me no good because I figured out if I wanted to read something again, I could just read the same copy. I didn't need to have a second one. So <clears throat> once I figured that out, I got some of these books that I'd bought multiple copies of so I could read multiple times and <laughs> decided I ought to just uh, uh, get rid of them. So let me tell you what we've got up here, and let me tell you my recommendation on how we get rid of them. I have one, two, three, four, five, six of these. This is a... <laughs> I was going to read this a lot. Um, this is the one-year book of Christian history. It's just a daily glimpse into what happened in church history. And, and so um, it's an interesting way to keep up with it. I've got six of these. I've got uh, two of these. It's the story of Christian theology. It's 20 centuries of tradition and reform. These have been water damaged. Um, so <laughs> if you don't like water damaged books, don't take one. Um, but they're free. Um, uh, so anyway, um, these are good. This is kind of a history of theology book. The fellow who wrote it, Roger Olson, um, at the time he wrote it, was at uh, Bethel College as a professor of theology in St. Paul, Minnesota. He's now at a Baptist seminary, um, I understand, but uh, uh, he's an outstanding writer, and this is the history of theology, how theology developed within the church. And it, it goes through, it's really a good book. And I've, I'm sorry, I've only got two copies to give away. And then I've got uh, four copies of the Apostolic Fathers, um, this has got the Greek on one side, um, which uh, uh, you can ignore, because it's got the English on the... Oh, I have a degree in it, and I ignore it. Uh, no, and it's got the, the English on the other side. Uh, it was originally done by Bishop Lightfoot in the end of the 1800s, but this fellow named Michael Holmes has put it into real good current English. This is the best translation I've found of the Apostolic Fathers. And the other nice thing about it is, is before each one of the books... It gives some introductory material about them. So it gives some good information about them. So I've got these um, books up here. And uh, they'll just be up here first come, first serve for anybody who wants them. But I would ask you to, to think about two things. Uh, number one, try to just like take one. Don't come up here and, and grab one of each because we can spread them out better that way. And number two, if it's the kind of thing where you've got the... the um, money and ability to go buy them yourself, sort of lag behind and don't race down the aisles just in case folks who don't have the budget right now to buy them might rather have it uh, instead. So that's the background. Now, second housekeeping point, I'm going to ask for your prayers. Um, uh, a good bit of you know I've started a Viox trial um, up ag uh, against Merck in Atlantic City, New Jersey which um, uh, is very interesting. It's got a lot of media attention, and the media is more fascinated that there's uh, some Baptist Sunday school teacher, although they don't even understand Sunday school teacher. I've been written up in this as being the preacher at this church, and I've tried to explain to them, y'all don't want me, and I don't have time. And <laughs> But I said, I just teach a class, but they don't even know what that is up there. So regardless, excuse, oh, Dale Hearn emailed the Wall Street Journal and said, he's not technically the preacher at our church. He just teaches a class. 
And uh, uh, I said, I sent the same email to him, but it doesn't do me any good, so good luck. Anyway, the guy this morning uh, had a wonderful statement for me. And I want you to pray for me this statement that he said this morning. It was fantastic. Um, um, I'm up there because I think I'm supposed to be and I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. But it should never cross the line to where I'm up there because of personal glory, vanity, victory, money, or any of that kind of stuff. Because that's not what any of us should be about in our lives. And so I love this. He said, there's one thing worse than failing before men. It's succeeding in things that don't matter to God. So if I'm up there, I want to be up there for his purposes. I don't know what they are. And I suspect knowing him the way um, I do, that there are a lot of them. He doesn't typically just do one thing for one result. He like weaves it like a wild tapestry to get all sorts of things out of it. And uh, it's exciting to me this morning uh, before class, uh, I was trying to work on trial and I was getting all these emails and some lady from Nature Magazine who's doing a write-up on the trial wanted to know if I could call her this morning. And I emailed her back and I said, well, I can't really because I'm in a mad rush to get ready to go teach my Sunday school class. We're learning about the effects of Gnosticism on the church in the 150s. Would you like me to email you my lesson? <laughs> she emailed me back and said, no, I'll talk to you later today. Um, I had another fellow, another lawyer email me this morning. And uh, he said, uh, do you have time to sit down this morning and spend a couple hours going over our opening statements for tomorrow? And I emailed him back and said, no, I'm in a mad rush right now to go teach my class on And I gave him the same line. He emailed me back and said, well, I'm about to go do yoga. <laughs> I said, okay, you go do yoga. I'll go teach my class. But if you want a copy, tell me and I'll email it. So um, uh, would you all pray for me that I'll succeed at the things that matter before God up there? Uh, that's what I care about. Okay, He's, he said, there's, yes, there's, there's one thing worse than failing before men. See, I, I mean, if I go up there, there's so much press attention. When I, you know, go up there, everybody's going to see what happens. If I win, it'll be really cool. If I lose, I like go down in flames in front of a bunch of people, okay, in front of TV, newspapers and all this stuff. Failing before men is kind of miserable, but there's one thing worse than failing before men, and that's succeeding at things that don't matter to God. I'd rather go up there and lose the trial and find a soul than go up there and win the trial and lose the soul. So we wanted to, yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you. She said do both. I'd like to do both, but the, the prayer's got to be that we succeed, all of us, at what we do. And I'll pray the same prayer for y'all as a corporate class. Uh, and then those of you who've given me your individual needs that I keep on my list, I'll continue to pray that we will succeed at the things that matter to God. Deal? Okay. Now, I got a confession to make. I failed you two ways today. Number one, I was going to try and answer your questions this class, but we had enough material that I didn't cover last week that I'm kind of put that off because that's something I can do without as much prep time. And so I may need that in the next week or two as kind of a fallback if I don't have enough time to get the full class ready. Um, uh, and so uh, I don't, I'm not answering questions this morning as I had planned to. I apologize. Number two, I had planned on supplementing the handout this week, which may be why some of you all took it, uh, with some additional material because I've got a little more time to add a little more. 
I added it to this lesson. I didn't have time to put it into writing. So that's why you don't have an additional handout this week. I apologize. Having said all of that, let's get into church history literacy. We're going to deal with our second week of heresies. We're going to finish up Gnosticism. About five minutes of this lesson, maybe ten, is repetitive of last week. I'm sorry, don't go to sleep. If you do, get your neighbor to wake you up when I'm through with the repetitive part because it's necessary for us to have it fresh in our minds as we look at the new material. Fair? Okay. Um, I love the Internet. Oh, this is official. Now we're starting class. I love the Internet. I have a dear friend who preaches for a church. He and I were in in, uh, school together. He preaches for a church out in California. He uh, is one of the guys that, that reviews my lessons for me and tells me where I've messed up. And uh, uh, he sent me an email and said, Have you seen this church website for X church? I won't embarrass them by using their name. In Pennsylvania. Look at it. And they've got a wonderful website urging people to come worship the Lord there. It says, quote, If you worship me, it will all be yours. Luke 4, 7. Now there's a problem here. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Let me tell you the problem. If you go back and look at, look at Luke 4, 7, that's Satan talking to Jesus. <laughs> In the temptations, Satan says to Jesus, if you worship me, it will all be yours. That's not what the church needs across the banner. The church has since changed it with thanks to whoever brought it to their attention, added the fact that they've gotten more hits on their website than they'd ever gotten before, and then further said this also confirms that you don't just grab a scripture without looking at the context. That's actually relevant today. Because the Gnostic movement that we're going to look at was famous for taking scriptures out of context. I, to this day, get frustrated, even within good churches, by lessons that take scriptures out of context and put them all together. Sometimes you can do that and put together a good godly message. But you're using scriptures that are wildly out of context to do it which isn't good godly method, even if the message is there. And so it's something that we always want to be careful about and something that we want to look at today. It's part of our lessons. We're going back to our lessons. Dr. John, I fixed this next slide for you. Um, Not that one, this one. Truth matters. And then John told me afterwards that I had that up there. He said, yeah, but the truth is that's a dog in sheep's clothing, not a wolf. So you said truth matters on a lying slide. I fixed it. (laughs) Truth makes a difference. Next point, the road to heresy. Remember, it's not always a stark U-turn. Sometimes it's a slight deviation that over time turns you around. That's the same way it is with sin. Oh, sometimes we just immediately decide, oh, gee, I think I'll just go blatantly be a horrible sinner. But typically it's not. Typically it's, well, I'm just going to do this. I know that's probably not right, but that's not that big a deal. And then... Well, I'll just go a little more step this way and a little more step that way. Lewis, you counsel people all the time. Isn't that more typical? Just, and then gradually you find yourself very far from where you should be. Okay? Same way with heresy. 
lessons today. It is important that we know we can understand what the Bible teaches in its core. The core message of God and Jesus Christ without knowing everything about every passage. There are things that I still don't have answers to in my Bible. I understand a core message, but there are still things that I quizzically wonder about. My mother, if you come over and eat with her, will at least once every three weeks ask you about some obscure biblical passage and whether it's talking about A, B, C, or D. And she's been walking with the Lord for... Well, she's 39 years old, but she's been walking with him for like 60, 70 years. And so, not 70, 60-something years. And uh, she's still got questions, you know. Everybody's got questions. So remember that. By the same token, that doesn't mean we shouldn't try and learn, right? Remember Hosea 4, 6? God said, my people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. Or in Isaiah, he said, my people will go into exile for lack of understanding, Isaiah 5.13. It is important that we know what Scripture is about. Those of you who are in precepts, those of you who are in a Bible study fellowship, community Bible studies, those of you who endured biblical literacy or go to other Bible study classes or have quiet time or read or study, I applaud you. Don't stop. It is important that we grow in knowledge. It's important enough that in this class, this isn't just a church history class, the hardest part of this class for me, and where people like Lewis and Dale and Charles and so many others help me week by week, it's by saying, here's how you can put Scripture into the class. Because we want this class to be one that's ultimately Bible study as well as church history. Okay? And then final lesson from last week that still applies today... Watch out for goofy interpretations of Scripture. If they're goofy interpretations, we've had the Bible now for, you know, 1,800 plus years, 1,900 plus years. The odds are pretty good if someone's come up with something really off the wall that it at least deserves close scrutiny. I'm not saying it couldn't be right. I am saying it it deserves close scrutiny. We are looking now with those lessons in our mind We are looking at a major heresy that arose in the first... Actually, toward the end of the first century, it was there. The Apostle John's writing against it in the end of the 100s. But it endures for several hundred years in the church. It's Gnosticism. The G is silent. It comes from the Greek word gnostikos, which means capable of attaining knowledge, especially secret knowledge. The Gnostics were people who thought they possessed some secret knowledge not generally possessed by the church that made them better, made them smarter, that made them in the know. They were the super spiritual Christians. Okay? These secret knowledge told them things. They understood, for example, that there was more than one God. They understood that the spirit of man, the spirit, the unseen part of man is good. But anything physical, the body, the earth, the material things are all evil. And this led them to multiple options. One option was just to say, okay, since the body's evil, I will not, I will not in any way, shape, form, or fashion indulge the body. Heaven forbid I indulge something evil. So we'll be aesthetics. 
will live celibate lives. We will not eat good food. We will not enjoy activities. We will do nothing fun. If they lived today, they would not have an air conditioner in Houston, Texas. And they would probably leave their windows open just to be eaten by mosquitoes. All in the name of the Lord. Or option two, which is, hey, snakes are snakes, frogs are frogs. You don't try and change them. The body's evil. Let it do evil. The spirit inside knows that you're just letting the body be who the body is. You want to fornicate? Fornicate. You want to adulterate? Adulterate. You want to be a glutton? Be a glutton. You do whatever you want to do. It's just that wicked body being who it can be. And these are the manifestations it took. Salvation then, for the Gnostics, salvation was never a matter of, of who you know, Jesus. Salvation was a matter of what you know. Did you know the secrets to set your spirit free so you felt liberated and could live this free life? And then when you die, if you knew the right things, because some of these systems had wacko beliefs, we're going to study Valentinius today. And Valentinius was one of these who believed that there were 30 gods stretched out throughout the heavens. And, and, and bad gods too. That doesn't even count like the satanic beings. And when we die, our spirit needs to navigate the stars to get back home to Heavenly Father. And you can best navigate the stars if you know how. So you pay them money and they'll teach you how. Yeah. <clears throat> Jesus was Savior because he taught the secrets about how to get home. Okay? Now, they would use Scripture for this. Oh, understand they would use Scripture. They would go to where Jesus would say to his apostles, why do you speak in parables? He would say, well, lest they understand and repent. And, and, and the Gnostics would take the scripture and say, you see, most people don't understand those parables, but we do. And we'll tell you the secret meaning Jesus had for them. And we'll look at some of this. We're going to look at it especially from St. Irenaeus of Lyon. Um, wasn't born there. He was originally from Smyrna. Grew up under Polycarp. We studied his martyrdom, you'll recall. In addition to that, uh, being mentored by Polycarp around 150, he moved to Lyon, France. They called it Lugdunum at the time, part of Gaul and uh, was there. He made a trip down to Rome. He came back up to France. And while he was there in Rome, he really studied Gnosticism, and he wrote five books against it. You can buy these books today. Um, uh, I don't know if... I, I don't think that would be... No, it's not an apostolic father, so it's not in here. So they threw in some extra stuff, but they didn't throw that in. But uh, uh, you can buy it. Um, uh, it's uh, basically against the heresies is what we would call it. And he talks about a number of different heresies. He approaches it in the following manner. He says, we've got two pillars for what we believe. The first is the authority of Scripture. If it's not in Scripture, we don't believe it. We believe what Scripture says. The second is apostolic tradition. What did the apostles teach? For Irenaeus, these two were very important because as we will see week after next, God willing, there were lots of things floating around being called Scripture that were not apostolic Scripture. There are lots of fake holy writings being passed around at this time. And I'll give you a readout of a bunch of them. 
But there are tons of them that are fake. Oh, one of them is, uh, you know, lots of, uh, we got extra, we got 3 Corinthians, supposedly, written by Paul. We've got, uh, which clearly Paul didn't write. We've got all sorts of fake writings going around. One by a guy who claimed to be Jesus' twin brother. You know, sort of missed that in the Gospels, didn't we? Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, there are all sorts of these types of writings. There's uh, the Gospel of Thomas. There's uh, um, uh, the, the childhood narrative from Thomas of Jesus as a kid where it talks about what Jesus did these first few years of his life where he's out playing with mud with the other kids. While the other kids are making mud pies, he makes a mud bird, breathes on it, and it becomes real and flies off. Okay? There are all of these kinds of fake scriptures out there. And they're fake because they're not apostolic. It was to the apostles that Jesus said, well, I'm going away, but my father's going to send another one, and he will remind you what I've taught you, and he will teach you what it means, and it is that Holy Spirit that came that breathed the message as well as the understanding into the apostles, which they then wrote. And so the church worked very diligently to put together scriptures that were part of the apostles' teaching and the apostolic tradition and not just floating out there. That's where we get our Bible from, as we'll look at in two weeks. St. Irenaeus looks at the doctrine of, uh, uh, of Gnosticism and other heresies in a way that I think is useful for us to examine doctrine. So I re-put it in this slide. He says, first of all, what is the doctrine? Let's flesh it out. Let's understand it for what it is. You want to talk to a Mormon about Mormonism. You can best do that by first understanding Mormonism. You don't want to go talk to someone about their religion without first understanding it, in my opinion, for a number of reasons. A, you won't communicate that clearly, but B, you better look out. Because if you don't understand what it is, you're in a position to be enticed. So he says, what's the doctrine? Let's flesh it out. And then, don't just stop there. Don't just stop saying, I'm going to read about Mormonism, or I'm going to read about you know, something else, say, I want to understand the basis and the authority. Why do they believe this? What is the claim? One of the questions that I was asked last week that I'm not answering today was, Joseph Smith got the tablets. Did anybody else see it? Well, yes and no. Supposedly, there were three independent witnesses and they've signed an affirmation. We saw it. But when you really filter through it, if I was going to be a lawyer and cross-examine them, I think I could convince a jury 10 times out of 10 that they didn't. Okay? So, but we can talk about that more. when we, 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 And we're going to study Mormonism when we reach the 1820s and 30s and 40s, God willing. But what is the basis or authority for the doctrine? And then the third question is, what does Scripture say about it? What does God's apostolic word in the Old Testament say about this doctrine? And that's the way Irenaeus analyzes it. It's a brilliant analysis. It's uh, one reason he's recognized as probably the best theologian, the, the first noteworthy theologian produced by the church since the Apostle Paul. So, last week we looked at Serenthus, the first of the three noteworthy Gnostics we were going to study. This week... 
We've got Marcion and we've got Valentinius. I build them as Marcion, money can't buy me love, or orthodoxy. And Valentinius, who I still wonder, did he meet the angel Moroni, who revealed to Joseph Smith the tenets of Mormonism? Let's look at it. We'll start with Marcion. Marcion was a major, major problem to the first century church. Second century church, sorry. Anybody ever heard of him? Show of hands. Okay, well, few of you, a handful. I'll bet you I saw five hands go up. This guy was one of the huge, I mean, biggest mega problems in the second, third century church. He might even still be a mega problem today if it weren't for the fact that he taught celibacy and none of his followers were allowed to have children. That's tough. Two ways. Number one, it's not real attractive to go out there and sell people on a faith that is a celibate faith. And number two, you lose the the next generation real quick because you ain't having them. Okay? I mean, you just got to bring in fresh recruits all the time because you can quickly tell the people who aren't practicing what they preach. Um. So, but Marcion, within the framework of of 150 years, was a massive problem to the church. A massive problem. I'm not talking about a local problem here in Jerusalem or local problem here in Antioch or Rome. I'm talking about throughout the Mediterranean world. Marcion, as a fellow, was born, as some scholars say, as early as 80, 85 B.C. Others say 100-ish B.C., but he's born somewhere around the time the Apostle John dies and the New Testament is closed. Okay? He's born in that area and his father, we believe, we believe, his father was a bishop of the church in Sinope. Sinope. If this is, uh, all right, this is the Mediterranean world, um, Asia Minor, that's Italy. Okay? You got the boot over there. And then as we come across, we've got Macedonia, and down here is Greece. You know, Corinth was down there. Um, You keep going across. This is modern Turkey, right? Modern Turkey. We've got Istanbul up here at the top. We've got Ephesus down in this area right here. The seven churches of Asia Minor that John wrote to down here. You've got the Galatian churches right over here. Paul was from Tarsus right here. If you go up north to the Black Sea, which is actually pretty huge. I mean, it's like 800 miles from from the the left side to the right side. It's about 400 miles north to Russia. Sinope was right in the middle of the southern shore, up in an area called Pontus. It's the area where Peter wrote 2 Peter 2. Okay? That's where he's from, Sinope, right there. Now, he doesn't uh, uh, stay in Sinope forever. He goes to Rome, but that gives you kind of, a, of a, an understanding of where he was and where he went. Now, I say he's a major, major problem. He's born in Sinope around 100. His father is a bishop of the church. And his father boots him out of the church for heresy. Actually... The Christian writings we have indicate he was booted out for seducing a virgin. But most scholars understand that as a polite way of talking about what he did to the church as the bride of Christ because he was a celibate aesthetic guy. 
Okay? So most church or most historical scholars consider that to be a reference to the fact he was teaching heresy and seducing the church, and his father kicked him out. All right? What happens? Well, he gets kicked out, and maybe it was while he was there, but maybe before, he becomes a wealthy shipping magnet. Not like he attracts ships, like a magnet, but, you know, like a big wig guy. He owns a bunch of ships. He's a wealthy ship owner. All right? And somewhere, because of his ships, he does a lot of traveling. And he goes around to Asia Minor. You remember Polycarp, our martyr? You remember the Polycarp lesson? The guy we read the martyrdom of Polycarp for, for 86 years. I've served the Lord and he's never denied me or done me any wrong. Why would I deny him now? You know, bring it on. That guy, holy guy, wrote the wonderful letter to the Philippian church. Had grown up at the feet of the Apostle John. The Apostle originally of Thunder who became the Apostle of Love. That Polycarp bumps into um, uh, Marcion in Asia Minor, in Polycarp's uh, old age. And Marcion says to Polycarp, Do you recognize me? Polycarp was burned to death, which is why he's uh, represented in flames. says, Do you recognize me? And this wonderful, loving, kind bishop who would give his life for his faith says, I recognize you for the firstborn of Satan. That's pretty harsh. I mean, you know, Lewis is my model pastor right now. He sits on the front row. He's, I've been around Lewis. I've known Lewis a lot longer than we've gone to church here. He's been a best friend of mine for 12 or 13 years. Okay? I've never heard him look at anyone and say, I recognize you for the firstborn of Satan or even the secondborn. I, he really generally doesn't... I heard him tell a joke one time. No, it was a Shreve. Shreve told the joke, and he and I laughed at it. That's the closest he's come. Joke about, <laughs> joke about Satan coming into church. See, that guy ended so early, we can throw a joke in. Satan comes into church, and, and as he starts walking down the aisle, everybody starts fleeing. I mean, just everybody flees. They see him, they're scared to death. All the exits just fleeing. Everybody in the whole congregation flees except one fella sitting right over there right about where you are. And uh, I won't say you because you've got a lovely wife sitting next to you. I need to pick out... Um, I can't pick out anybody. Right where that empty seat is, right over there. There was a fella right in that seat, okay? No, Mike, I can't do this to you. And that empty seat right over there. And the only guy that doesn't leave, Satan sits down next to him. Guy just looks up, just looks back down, keeps doing what he was doing. Satan says... You don't, you, you, you just sitting there? Guy says, yep. He says, you don't, you don't want to run? Guy says, no. Says, aren't you afraid? Guy says, no. He says, don't you know who I am? Guy says, look, I know who you are. I've been married to your sister for 30 years. Now leave me alone. Okay. Yeah. There you go, Mike. Um, That's the closest I've seen Lewis come to ever say anything like this was laughing at that joke. What would cause Polycarp, man of God, 
to say that to someone? Well, I want to tell you. It's what Marcion was teaching and doing to the church. He was doing the works of Satan. We've got to remember, Satan's influence and attack on us is not just physical sinning. He's not just trying to get you to lie or to cheat or to steal or to be unfaithful to him or to your spouse or to be disobedient to your parents or what your authority figures or anything like that. It's not just interested in physical sinning. He also likes to attack your mind and he likes to attack your faith. He wants you not to understand who God is. He wants you not to understand what Jesus did for you and why he did it. He wants you not to understand the the glorious salvation we have. He wants you not to understand what it is to be forgiven because he doesn't want you forgiving the people who've wronged you. He wants you to hold on to all the bitterness and all the hurt and all the anger. And the more you understand what you've been forgiven of, the harder it is to hold on to that. So he attacks your mind as well. And he attacks your faith. He doesn't want you believing that Jesus is truly God. He doesn't want you believing that He truly is resurrected. He doesn't want you to believe that you have eternal life with God because of faith in something God did for you. He wants you miserable. He wants you unhappy. And He will attack you any way He can. And so, we have Marcion, who gets kicked out of the church at Sinope, who runs into Polycarp, probably in Asia Minor, but it could have been in Rome, because Polycarp made a trip to Rome. But ultimately, over to Rome comes Marcion. And he comes around 139 to 140 A.D. And the first thing he does, you've got to remember, they didn't have the Internet. It was down. <laughs> the Internet was down at this time, and so they couldn't, like, email, hey, The firstborn of Satan is headed your way. His daddy kicked him out of the church for his heresy. Look out. So Marcion comes to the Roman church, which is probably at this point the largest church. If not, it might be Ephesus or it might be Antioch. But most scholars, they could even be Alexandria, but most scholars think there were more Christians in Rome than anywhere else at this point in time. So to the Roman church comes Marcion. And you know the first thing he does? He donates a honking amount of money to the church. 200,000 sesterces. Think a few hundred thousand bucks. It's a ton of money to an illegal religion. He donates it to the church. And the church welcomes him with open arms. They didn't know any better. Come on in. And for four or five years, Marcion stays at that church and just gets involved. He gets his tentacles out. And after five years, he's got enough authority. Remember, your church there in Rome is not everybody coming to Strack and Champion Forest to meet on a Sunday. They meet in houses and places. It's distributed throughout the city. So so Marcion comes and he says, I want all the church leaders. I'm going to call you all together. I just need all the church leaders to come together. I've got a presentation to make. And all the church leaders come together and he makes a presentation. He says, i got to teach you some secrets. I want to teach you some theology. I want to show you how we can kick church up a notch. And the church leaders listened to him and said, uh, that's heresy. Here's, 
I applaud the church for this. Here's your money back. We don't want to have anything to do with you. And they give him back his money. And they boot him out of the church. And he proceeds, Marcion proceeds to take that money and his shipping work that he does and go establish his churches with his theology all over the place. And he does it. Let me tell you about his heresy. Marcion believed that there was a God of the Old Testament that was very different than Jesus and the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament was an evil, manipulative God of hatred and war. Read your Old Testament. Read Joshua. That God in the Old Testament, the Jewish God, was just wiping out people right and left. The Jewish God was was a warmonger. The Jewish God put a law down that had all of these requirements with justice. And it's so very different from Jesus. Now, time out. Call me a cynic or call me a lawyer or say it's the same thing. But I'm really, and, and, and Lewis knows how I'm just so persnickety about some issues in life. I won't underscore them. We'll tell you to vote this week because it's so important we vote good Christian votes. But I'll also tell you to watch out because it doesn't always mean what people say. Okay? I see an economic motive in this religion of his. See, he was a ship magnet, right? He, had, he owned ships. Do you know how he made money? Hauling goods all over the place. He was a transport hauler. And he made money that way. Do you know what cost him money? War. He hated war. The Romans were always in war somewhere or another. And he was very anti-war. Because, do you remember in your New Testament where Jesus says, if a man, a soldier, asks you to go one mile, what do you do? Go with him too. Because the Roman soldiers had an ability to order a common person to carry the soldier's goods for one mile. That's just an ability of a soldier. They could, they could say, okay, Jim, I want you to carry my bags for the next mile. And Jim would have to do it. Okay? They could do it. They could do the same thing with the shipping magnets. The Roman government could say, you own a ship. I'm re- I am requiring you to sail your ship for the next six months, moving our goods this shipping season, moving our troops, moving our supplies, moving our whatever. Well, that means no income for the next six months. This is a guy that just deep within... I mean, if he went to the polls, he'd be voting for the peace candidate because war costs him money. So he's out there spreading around the whole empire that the Jewish God, and the empire generally hated Jews, the Jewish God was the God of war. Jesus, on the other hand, wasn't. Jesus was a God of love and peace, which... Brings me to my next caution. Economic motives can be a very dangerous influence on religion. Always, always, always. Economic motives can be a very dangerous influence on religion. It's very easy to start turning your religion to what helps put money in your bank account. And we need 
I'm a cynic. That's enough said. So, Old Testament God, he said, was this evil, manipulated God of hatred and war. Jesus comes and he asks the question, how can the wrathful, vengeful God of the Jews be the loving, merciful God of Jesus? Ignorance can be a dangerous influence on religion and politics. This guy needed to come to our biblical literacy class because he needed to understand what the Old Testament was about and why the Old Testament was written and why God did what God did and why we have a progressive revelation of this God in our understanding of Him and in His revelation. But we understand that this is a God who has taught us from time immortal that evil is evil and set to be destroyed. Redemption comes where redemption can, but evil is evil and set to be destroyed. He didn't understand that. So he's left with a vengeful, manipulated God of hatred and war versus Jesus who came and was a reflection of a higher and purer God of love. And he was that bold. He said he wrote a book called The Antithesis, which is kind of the opposites. And his whole book was, how can the God of the Old Testament be the God of the New Testament? They can't be the same. He said, for example, in the Old Testament, God in Genesis 3, 9, walking in the garden, calls out to man, where are you? Because he can't find them. Whereas in the New Testament, Jesus knew even the thoughts of men. Can't be the same God, he said. Or in the Old Testament, that God said, an eye for an eye. But in the New Testament... Jesus said, if someone strikes you on one cheek, you turn to him the other also. How about this? In the Old Testament, God had the the Jews enter Jericho and murder every man, woman, and child. But in the New Testament, Jesus said to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you and to turn the other cheek. He says, it can't be the same God. He said, in the Old Testament, Elijah was mocked by a group of young boys and he calls a she-bear out to maul and kill the boys. In the New Testament, Jesus says, let the little children come to me. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament God of the Jews said, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. But in the New Testament, Jesus is ordered to hang on a tree. He says it's different. The Old Testament, this Jewish God is a God who maybe we could call him at best a God of justice. But Jesus is a God of mercy. And a tree is known by its fruit. So if the God of the Old Testament is a God who's produced this evil, wicked world where all these bad things happen and a tree is known by its fruit, according to Jesus, then that God must be an evil, wicked God. And Jesus is a loving, peaceful God. So, what did he do? Marcion said, let's dump the Old Testament. Now, we've got churches today that want to dump the Old Testament because they don't understand how the two fit together. They won't sit there and say, well, it's an opposite. They'll just say, well, the Old Testament, it's it's gone. It's a goner. Now we have the New Testament, so who needs the Old Testament anymore? No, no. Ignorance can be a dangerous influence, I'm going to repeat it again, on religion and politics. So what did Marcion do? Well, he rewrote the canon, or he wrote his own canon, I should say, his own collection of scriptures. He wrote his own Bible. 
not by writing it. He edited it. He said, here's the Bible. No Old Testament. We're just going to have a New Testament. You want to know what's in it? First of all, we're going to put Luke in there. Because Luke hung around with Paul. See, Paul was a good guy. The other apostles, they didn't get it. Paul got it. If the other apostles had got it, why would Jesus have needed to come to Paul on the road to Damascus and reveal it all over to him? This guy should have been in our biblical literacy class. But that's what he was telling people. So he says, now we got to edit Luke. Why do you edit Luke? Well, first of all, the first two chapters explain how Jesus is like the coming Messiah and related to David and you know, Jesus and John the Baptist and God making the appearance to the priest. It's pretty Jewish. Kind of like links up Jesus to the God of the Old Testament. So he says, ah, that was added. Jews got a hold of that Gospel of Luke and added it. Let's jerk it out. He said, not only that, in, in, in Luke 4, 1 through 3, we got to take that out too. Because when Jesus was tempted, he was quoting Deuteronomy. Jesus never would have quoted the Old Testament because he knew that was an evil, wicked God. So we got to take that out too. So he just cuts it out like a surgeon with cancer. Okay? Then he says, we need to take out Luke 4, 16 through 32, uh, 30 also, because Jesus says he fulfills the Old Testament. And that, that can't be right either because the Old Testament's wrong. You see how he just destroys Scripture to try and come... And, and, and here's the... Irony is too mild a word. Hypocrisy may be the right word. Here's the hypocrisy. I'm throwing away the Old Testament because it has scriptures I don't understand. And then I'm going to take the New Testament and I'm going to cut the scriptures out that I don't understand and throw them away. When his own Gospel of Luke has things he can't understand and somewhere in there he ought to say, gee, maybe I don't understand it all and pray for enlightenment. No. So he got edited Luke. Now, he was not satisfied there. You know what else he put in his Bible? Ten of Paul's letters. He didn't put in 1st, 2nd Timothy, and he didn't put in Titus. We don't know why. But he put in the other ten letters of Paul. But even that, uh, uh, even that he had to edit. Okay, we're going to edit Paul. First of all, Romans 9, 10, and 11 about God coming back and the Jews being restored and all of that. Take that out. Don't know how that got in there, but that can't be right. Romans 3, 21... Through 425, that's after Paul says the, the Jews are under a curse, the world's under a curse, the Greeks are under a curse. Anybody who tries to live by the law is under a curse. He liked all of that. But then he takes out 321 where, Jesus, or where Paul said, but now a righteousness has come to us apart from law, even though it's attested to by the law and the prophets. Now again, put that in there. And then Paul goes on to say, our best illustration of being saved by faith is Abraham. No, we can't put that in there. That's Old Testament stuff. So he jerks all that out too. Galatians, <laughs> rip out the stuff on Abraham and Galatians. Can't put that in there. Now I've got this question for you. Why were people attracted to this balderdash? Why? Well, I'll throw you some suggestions. Number one, there are always people who like the new and cutting edge. Ooh, this is something new. I'm ready for something. I like to be the new one. I like to have the new stuff. I like, I like, I like... I'm not one of those old-time conservatives. I'm a, I'm a new guy. I'm cutting edge. And there's, there's good in that. Those are people who embrace Jesus. But you've got to be careful. 
Isn't it great to be in the know? Most people don't understand this stuff. I do. I'm in the know. You're just a Christian. I'm a Christian on vitamins. <laughs> and I'm megadose. The lifestyle was most impressive. How many people are persuaded by religions because they admire the lifestyle? I'm convinced Mormonism gains more converts because of the lifestyle than the doctrine. And there's a reason why lifestyle evangelism works like he talked about. People see you living that way and they want to know why because people are hungry for something that makes a difference in their life. I've got to keep going. Um, ignorance of scripture and theology. Why were people attracted? You may say this is so wacko. You may be saying, what's... This is so wacko. Why would people be attracted to a message of peace and love? Could it happen? Is it, is it even remotely possible? Maybe the moon was in its seventh house and Jupiter aligned with Mars Maybe peace was guiding the planets and love was ruling the stars. It was this the age of Aquarius came early. That's a very Gnostic song, by the way, if you listen to the lyrics. Let the sun shine. Okay, thanks, Mark. Marcionism spread like a poison. Tertullian wrote that, that he planted churches the way wasps ne make nests, just right next to each other. Bam, 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 bam. They were all over the place. What was the church's response? The church said, number one, we're not going to have any part of it. Take your money and go. Number two, we're going to show this heresy and we're going to explain the apostolic truth. We're going to stand up for what's right. The church didn't say, well, let's just, it's Marcion. He's a rich guy. And, you know, not that that would be the reason. And, um, you know, just let him, let him have his little group. and We'll gradually teach him the truth. No. No, the church didn't. The church made a concentrated effort to put together the right canon so that people knew what were apostolic writings and what were not. And we'll study that. Now, we can't leave without me telling you about Valentinius real quick. Valentinius had 30 divine gods. I can do this in three minutes. One minute for God. No, that, that'd be 30 minutes. Tenth of a minute for God. All right, he had 30 divine gods, okay? There were 30 of them out there. This is what he taught. See, originally there were two. And they, this is, Mormon theology teaches that there are gods having celestial sex with celestial children of which we are a part, Okay? So this is not just something wacko then. Okay? There are two gods who have 12, they, they have 10 offspring ultimately. Actually, those two have two and then they have some more. But you wind up with 12 that are all silent. These are the silent gods. And then 18 more. And so you've got 30 silent gods, all right, before Jesus comes. They have great names too. There's first father. He was the first. First father joined with silence. And they gave birth to mind and truth. And along came profound and ageless. Now, when you read the Bible and you see, and you see Father, you know who is being spoken of. When you talk about renewing your mind, you understand the God that's being talked about working in your life. The ageless, the, the God of the ages, that's a different God. 
profound, pro wise. That's a different God. And so there are all these gods, and they came up with these names. Valentinius did. And then Valentinius says, you know, you've got glimpses of this in the New Testament. If you were enlightened, you'd understand. For example, you remember the parable of the vineyards and the workers in Matthew 20? That God sends, Jesus says, the, 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 the man who owned the vineyard sent some out the first hour. He sent some out the third hour. He sent some out the sixth hour and some the ninth and some the eleventh. Do you remember that parable? Add those together. One, three, six, nine, eleven. You know what it equals? 30? 30 gods. That's what he was teaching. See, <clears throat> 30 years he had a silent ministry before he went public. 30 years of silent gods. 30 silent gods. 30 years of silent ministry. These are the secrets. He spoke in parables because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you. It's in these parables. And it isn't that different than Joseph Smith receiving his secret revelation. With all due respect. Now, remember, the two become twelve, and then there are eighteen more, and they've got these great names. And I love the way Irenaeus wrote about it. Because when he said, I want to identify first what they believe, he said, do you realize how foolish they are? That they've, uh, you know, this sounds so wonderful. And, you know, the, the first father. And, and, and first father joins with silence and they produce mind and, and profundity and they have ageless and they have... You know. He says, eh, come on. He says, you made up the names. You just, you decided what the names are. If they're silent, they're not telling you. So he says, let's just do it our own way. Whoa, whoa, alas, alas, indeed, such a concoction of names. And such boldness to add the names to his belief system without blushing. That you could even say, I know the names when they're silent. He's given names to his God. So, nothing prohibits anyone else from proposing names for the same system. So he says, I'm going to be Valentinius. I'm just going to choose different names. There exists a power which I call a squash. And with this squash coexists a power to which I give the name utter emptiness. Now this squash and utter emptiness brought forth a fruit which we call a cucumber. With this cucumber there coexists a power to which I give the name pumpkin. And I, I love the way, you know, when you start saying it that way and you just change the names from ageless and profound and first father to squash, pumpkin, and cucumber, you kind of get the feeling that it's not quite as deep and intellectual as it sounded. Heresy led them to do shameless, forbidden things because the truth leads to Jesus Christ and the desires of the heart of God. Untruth leads away from that to something that's shameless and forbidden. And I believe there's one thing worse than failing before men, and it's succeeding in things that don't matter before God. We want to pursue the things of Jesus. So here are our points for home. Truth is truth. Fiction is not. That's why we call it fiction. You measure truth by God's word. Let's decide to learn more. Make a personal decision right now. I'm going to learn more. And salvation's a real event by a real God in real history. Next week, an early charismatic movement goes awry. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for these folks in here. I pray your blessings on them this week. I pray your blessings on, on my family while I'm gone. I pray your blessings on what I'm about. I pray all of us, Lord, all of us this week will be about doing the things that matter before you. In the name of Jesus, amen.